0: Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello, I'm Ashley Chnati. I'm Hadea Rodrique.
2: I'm Ryan McMahon.
1: Welcome back to Canada Land Commons. Woo! Yeah, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> We have so many things to talk about today. It's been one of those ridiculous news cycles. Uh, So we're going to start off with some discussion of M103. That's the motion to condemn Islamophobia and systemic racism and launch a House of Commons study on it, as well as the rebel media rally that was spawned by hatred of that motion and how that plays into the conservative leadership race.
2: Yeah, the settlement in the 60s scoop suit is huge. And from what I can tell, it's been drastically underreported in legacy media. And I think it's really important that we talk about it with Canadians today.
0: And finally, we'll talk about the implications of refugees fleeing across the North Dakota slash Manitoba border in the wake of Trump's ban. If the Trudeau government isn't going to tear up the third country agreement, then ultimately, will they just be shipping these people back to the states? Welcome to Commons. All right, guys,
1: so I learned something really cool today. What did you learn? That you can contribute to RSPs for last year until March 1st, which means you can use it as like tax credits to offset your earnings and maybe get a bigger return. You can contribute to RSPs to reduce last year's taxes until March 1st. Yeah, the fiscal year might have ended on December 31st, but you can still contribute to your RSPs to offset your earnings from last year. I don't have an RRSP yet, and I think maybe I should get one, and probably before March 1st.
0: An RRSP is a great idea. Um, I have one myself, and it can lower your tax bill and turn you into a responsible retirement-saving
2: adult, otherwise known as adulting. And I know just the place you can get one for free. It's called Wealthsimple, and it makes saving and investing super easy. And to make it even better, listeners of Commons get their first $10,000 of investments managed for free for the first two years at Wealthsimple.com slash Commons.
0: And don't forget the special offer for our listeners. Their first $10,000 is managed for free for two years. All you have to do is visit Wealthsimple.com slash Commons.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself... And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Canada Land. Once again, it's com slash Canada Land.
1: All right, first show, new group of hosts. We have so much to talk about. I think the one thing that's been consuming Canadian media this week is this M103 motion. And one of the things that, is driving me absolutely up the wall is this idea that it is a law. This misinformation that is spreading out there that it's actually going to change the law and make it a criminal act to, to say something contrary to Islam. It's just not true. And I really hope our listeners sort of take that away. Motions presented on the floor like this are largely symbolic And are intended to sort of show what the House of Commons feels in a specific moment in time. The only thing that's different about this one is that it becomes an order of the House if it's passed. And will create a committee to actually study Islamophobia and systemic racism.
0: No. And the thing that also strikes me is that. They're not technically singling it out. They're saying racism. They're just highlighting the word Islamophobia, which makes sense given what happened two weeks ago. They're not saying we're just going to study Islamophobia. They're saying we're going to study Islamophobia and racism, of which Islamophobia is a form of. And just the fact that people have you know, said that this has become a law and we're going to have Sharia law, uh, Sharia law, Sharia, Sharia, I'm saying this right, Sharia law, and, um, And they're getting sort of their knickers in a twist about something that's not true and has been shown on several media sites to be not true. They're like, everyone is getting mad about a thing that's not going to happen. And it just kind of boggles my mind that people are willing to overlook facts so blatantly just to support their position.
2: Yeah, I agree, and you know I, I'll have to admit that I had to do some reading to really fully wrap my head around M one hundred and three, and there was a lot of talk about this fear of Sharia law being introduced in Canada, and a lot of the fear mongering centers centers around that, uh, but also the the free speech issue. So I, I dug into the Sharia law thing uh, a little bit, and one of the core tenets of Sharia law is to respect the laws of the land in which you are, and that's pretty consistent across the board. So in my mind, what Sri law is saying is to respect the laws of Canada to live here in a mutually beneficial situation. So they are allowed to practice their faith, but will live under these laws. And I dug deep and I kept finding that same tenant coming up over and over again. So I wish we could just put that to rest.
1: So even if we put that side of it to rest, I think the thing that's most galling about this is you have all these conservative members saying they can't vote for it because they don't know what Islamophobia means. But they voted to condemn Islamophobia last year in a different motion from Thomas Mulcair. So I guess they knew what it meant in 2016, but they don't in 2017, maybe because they're in a leadership race and, and their base is getting all riled up. Also,
0: do they know how words work? Because I'm pretty sure we all know what a phobia is, and usually you just, it means fear of the thing in front of it. But isn't it thought police to tell someone they can't be scared of something? No one's saying you can't be scared, but you can't be unreasonably demonstrate hatred towards another group for no reason. You know, there are limits on free speech, free speech You know, it's it's not that we have recognized that we have a charter of rights and freedoms and some things get subsumed by others. And if your speech and your hate is going to lead to other people dying, I think that takes precedent.
2: And I really have to. Uh, I don't want to, but I really have to take a minute to connect this back to what's happening south of us. And that fear mongering and that hate and people not making space for other people in this country, which, by the way, (laughs) you know, uh, we have some pretty racist roots that we tend to ignore. We can't ignore what's happening to the south. And the fact that there is a conservative uh, leadership race happening right now, this all uh, will bode well for a few that remain very loud and very fearful in the wake of this very clearly needed private members bill
1: and and from private members motion. We need motion. to be clear. Sorry, sorry, motion. Oh, yeah. motion. <laughs> thank, you, thank
2: you. Motion. Yes. Just So
1: everybody's clear. It's not a bill. It's not (laughs) emotion. Sorry. Um, So, but you okay? So the thing I don't understand with the conservatives here is they just lost an election by trying to play these games, and they won their majority by reaching out deeply into new Canadian communities and speaking to potentially like small C conservative values that they shared. And I feel like longer term, this isn't good politics for them. And it served really as a distraction. It was not a very good news month for the Trudeau government. I mean, they'd had a rough go of it basically since Christmas and the Aga Khan helicopter kerfuffle, right up until this M103 stuff exploded. And then the Trump Trudeau visit went kind of okay. And now all of a sudden, the conservatives are making the same mistakes that lost them the last election.
0: Do you think they're trying to sort of play the game of the Republicans down to the south where they just want to get into power again? And then once they do, they can sort of change those rules to keep themselves in power. And they think for some reason that i um, sort of playing to this extremist and this kind of base that, you know, they can win like they saw it win south of us after eight years of Obama. Um, so our maybe
1: our s- system is really different, though
0: it is but we still win majorities with like 30% of the of the vote right so if you know if there are enough secret racists out there you know no one thought trump was going to win no one thought it i went to bed thinking i was in a nightmare and this was not real but he did win so they're hitching their bandwagon onto the extremist right position because if they try and battle with the small c values, they think they're gonna lose out to Michael Chong. So perhaps this is just a, a strategy or a game.
1: So I have one last fact gavel on M103 I wanna drop, and it's the fact that the House of Commons passes these kinds of motions All the time. Uh, There was one just passed about Italian Canadians that actually read that in the opinion of the House, the government should recognize the contributions that Italian Canadians have made to Canadian society, the richness of the Italian language and culture and the importance of educating and reflecting upon Italian heritage for future generations by declaring June every year. Italian Heritage Month wasn't there one about Christmas trees? So there's a Christmas tree bill in Ontario. Okay, which is a bill. It's like a bill. There's officially a Christmas tree day in December to like promote the fresh Christmas tree industry. But there's like an almost identical motion about this Italian Canadian ones about Mennonites. There's currently a motion on the books about recognizing like the horrors that the Kurdish people are going through. Like it's not a bad thing for our government to say the Kurdish people are going through horrific things, but Since when, like, bless the Italian people of Canada, my partner is one of them. But since when is Italian Heritage Month something that, like, is crucial knowledge for young Canadians? I find,
0: too, that there's almost more outrage about the motion than there is about the actual death of six people in injury of 19. Like, I feel like the news cycle has been dominated by the story and the the emphasis on free speech and it's actually overshadowed the horrible tragedy that happened and i f- saw something on twitter that i found a really interesting statement by erica heidewald it says if the only time you defend free speech is when the speech is racist sexist or homophobic you don't love free speech you love bigotry
1: ooh that's really good
2: Sometimes.
0: Islam is evil. Say no to Islam.
2: I don't know Muslim people. I don't have any Muslim friends. Who's committing all these terrorist acts? They're Muslims, they're not Christians, they're not Buddhists. People were painting this as a, I don't know, white supremacist, KKK, neo Nazi, anti whatever sort of event. I'm looking out at the crowd right now. This is a family.
1: Looks <laughs> pretty normal to me. Islamic speech codes are not a reasonable limit on my freedom of speech.
0: Canadian values are not fringe, and together I know we're going to fight for them. It's great to be in a room of severely normal people (laughs) tonight.
1: So Ryan, did you see that rebel rally? Were you able to watch that from your travels crisscrossing the country that was in Toronto this week?
2: I just left Toronto, (laughs) luckily the day it went on, and yes, I did see it, and... You know, I, I don't know when we're going to wake up as a country and see what's happening. Uh, the fact that there's half a million subscribers on their YouTube channel, the fact that pretty much overnight, they can call a rally this size and have the turnout that they did in a standing room only ro- uh, room in downtown Toronto. This is major. This is major news. And... Um, the way that they're shouting at reporters trying to uh, report on the rally, the way that they are sort of taking the page right out of uh, Donald Trump's manual on how to uh, whip up the right and so-called alt-right. Yeah, it's frightening. I saw it and uh, it, it doesn't, uh, didn't make me feel, good, feel safe or good.
0: It's hard to make sense of any of this. I don't have any Muslim friends. Uh, Okay. Is that
1: a good thing? (laughs) Like, Clearly, that's a good thing that that woman doesn't have any Muslim friends because...
0: Does she have any black friends either? I I would guess probably not. It's just, it's hard when I come from a place of logic to argue with people who are being irrational and illogical. I don't know what to say to them because facts don't work. What would work on a reasonable human doesn't work. And... The process of sense-making is defined as the ability to attempt to make sense of an ambiguous situation. And my sense-making abilities are failing me when it comes to... Because it's
1: not logical, right? Like, if there's nothing... If you look at the rhetoric of, of hate, which is really what this is, it's an emotional appeal. Like, there's nothing about it that is intended to be logical like they'll use the trappings of logic to further their argument but at its core it's a fear and anger based argument if you can even call it an argument and i i think the fact that we had four conservative leadership candidates there and the only i think we should name them we had kelly leach brad trost pierre lemieux and chris alexander And they need to own this. And then you have Chris Alexander tweeting today, I don't believe in any kind of racism or Islamophobia, but I'm not going to vote for the motion. And that's when your head just like Explodes. explodes. Yeah. Like it just explodes. I feel like we could go over and over this for the rest of the podcast. But there's like so much news that hasn't been covered this week. And this has been debated to death. Uh, But if you're a Conservative Party member and you're listening to this, you know, maybe take a look at who your options are. Michael Chong is the only one who says he's going to vote for this motion.
2: Well, and I, I just want to say in response to hearing those clips, you know, that I th- it's really clear that this country needs to take a long, cold shower. They need to take a long look in the mirror and decide on its future. We as citizens of this country need to create the political will that will exist going forward. And the only way to stand up to this bullying and this hate is to stand up to it on the ground in communities. And so I think now I had the idea, and I I said this with friends, I will create a prayer circle around any mosque in any town or city in this country to keep people safe to pray however they want to pray. I will put my body on the line in March. In communities to create the country that we know there is potential for. But if we allow this to get too big, and if we don't oppose it vocally with resources, with people, with thoughts, with ideas, with prayer, with love, however you choose to oppose it, then we're doing it wrong. And I want to be on the record to say I stand. Directly opposed to racism. I stand directly opposed to hate. And there is room for all people in this country. And by the way, this is indigenous land. And my elders tell me that there is room here for all people as long as you come with a good heart and a good mind. And uh, I want to be on the record to say that. <laughs>
1: an open stretch of border between north dakota and manitoba is seeing an unprecedented spike in the number of refugees crossing into this country down a frozen road canada has put out the welcome mat for refugees, but is now seeing a record number of refugees crossing the border from the U.S.
0: Officials in Emerson, Manitoba are calling out for help after a sharp increase in the number of people walking across the border from the
3: U.S. Over the weekend, in the dark and cold, 22 people walked right through that abandoned border crossing, the latest in a surge of asylum. So
1: here's my biggest concern about all this whipped up hatred beyond potentially a... Horrifying set of laws coming in under a prime minister who endorses this kind of rhetoric is these people, this this turnout at this rally, are they what are they going to do when the trickle of refugees coming over the border right now and negative 20 weather going through frostbite? becomes a little bit more of a flood when it's, you know, a lot nicer out and that trek is like, oh, OK, let's it's it's like 20 degrees and lovely Casual in the woods jaunt
0: across the border.
1: Yeah. And so where where is this reaction going to go? Because I think right now this very friendly reaction we're seeing, even then, it's like a ta- like there's there's still already hints of of some resistance in some towns, like there's a a great piece by Jason Markosoff and McLean's both a long form piece and then a a shorter piece that's just about one town. And within that town, there's a lot of angst about about these refugees appearing. Some people saying, well, they're criminals because they're crossing the border illegally. What happens when it's not 20 people in a weekend, when it's 200?
0: I don't know, I'm scared. You know, people, when people are angry and irrational, they do things like shoot a bunch of people and these people are an easy target right so um i mean they're angry just at emotion that's not a bill they're going to be angry at actual um, actual action and actual people coming into their canada so i'm i'm scared I feel like it's actually like like Ryan's the one who, as he was saying,
1: is like his elders say there's room for everyone. So I feel like that should be the rule, right?
2: Yeah, I you know the what what my elders say is that the way this country was founded was with open hearts and open minds, and we agreed to a certain set of of uh, principled stands, the way we were going to help each other, support each other, love each other, going into the future. We know how that went, but. That was the intention. That was the spirit and intent of this land. And so for me as an Indigenous person, looking at the rhetoric around who should come in and who should come out, I mean, we are supposed to live in a, in a spirit of peace, friendship, and uh, harmony. And when people around the world aren't able to uh, live under those conditions, they flee. And when there is a war, when there is dictatorship, when there is famine, um, they flee. And we happen to be the luckiest people in the world. Generally speaking, people know where their next meal comes from. They know Don Cherry is going to be on TV Saturday night essentially in this country, we have very little to worry about. And so when we see the flood of of refugees coming, I think there's there's two things that are really important to think about. One, we have the space. We have the abilities. We have the mechanisms to accept those that are fleeing uh, horrendous conditions in other countries. The second thing I think we should consider is the miracle in which they got here. So if somebody walks across the border at Emerson in Manitoba. I can tell you because living in Manitoba, this is muskeg and swamp for, you know, a couple hundred kilometers between borders. There are no protective bushes. You're not walking through the, the Canadian Shield. You are walking through swamp and water and rivers, and there aren't a lot of trees. There, It's just wide open prairie and swamp. And so, you know, When a mom is is carrying a stroller and there are five kids and they show up at the border, really we're just pointing guns at them and sending them back to to have Trump deal with them? Is that what we're about as a country? And thinking about doing that uh, to me is so disappointing and, and offensive to me.
1: So one of the things I dug into a bit before this show was what's happening with these refugees once we meet them at the border. So if they file a claim, Canada is actually a signatory to a UN convention on refugee status. That means they are taken. They aren't detained like someone who has been found in violation of an immigration order. They're basically given like
0: temporary refugee status. You might know more about that as a lawyer. Not an immigration lawyer. so
1: (laughs) It's like I was just assuming all lawyers know all the laws and you could just like spout them It doesn't
0: really come up when you're doing management side employment
1: (laughs) and labor work,
0: unfortunately. Unfortunately.
1: But what this means is that when someone lands on Canadian soil, the second their feet are here and they declare themselves a refugee to a border services agency, that starts a process that will give them a a chance to get, you know, residency status and then perhaps pursue citizenship. But if we want to talk about policy solutions to this before it becomes a problem or a bigger problem, I think the NDP actually have a really good one. Uh, there's something called the safe third country agreement. And what that means is at the Canadian U.S. border, you're not we, they officially can't take a refugee claim at an official border crossing because we're both presumed to be countries that follow these refugee claim laws. But what the NDP has said is Donald Trump's travel ban, immigration ban from seven Muslim majority countries essentially violates the spirit of that agreement. So now we're in a place where we should essentially rip that up or find a way to write rewrite the laws so people can do these in more official ways. So they don't have to be crossing,
0: you know, through mush or taking a boat across Lake Ontario. Or losing their hands to get here. If someone is willing to lose their hands to get to this country, I'm just like, let them in.
1: <laughs> like, was, Clearly they want to be here more than a lot of people who I, take a lot of our freedoms for granted.
0: I can barely stay outside for 15 minutes, let alone traverse for hours. Like the horrors they're escaping are real. People don't do this if you're without that sort of motivation in that background and to turn away someone to and send them back to almost certain death is just cruel. The 60 scoop settlement, a landmark decision. For those of you who don't know what the 60 scoop is, Uh, It was a period in time from 1965 to 1984 when 16,000 Indigenous children were taken away from their families, often placed into adoption with non-Native parents. Sometimes their identities were erased. They were told their previous identity didn't exist. Their names were changed. They lost their culture, their language, and their belonging to their families. And this lawsuit was brought to rectify and get some sort of reconciliation for that immense damage that was caused. Um, They've requested in their lawsuit $85,000 per person, and therefore it was a lawsuit requesting $1.3 billion from the federal government.
2: Yeah, and I think what's really important to, to, to note is that You know, maybe for a lot of listeners, they hadn't heard of the 60s scoop. Um, But I want to point out and make the distinction that uh, we in Indigenous communities knew about the Sixties Scoop just as much as we knew about residential school, and the effects are are very similar. In fact, you know, February 14th, just a couple of days ago, we commemorated the February 14th Day of Marches and Actions for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. So we connect all of these things and have been for decades the way the Scoop has broken up families and, and created the, the legacy of trauma that exists. And by the way, for Canadians wondering where the hell this came from, well, we still have to talk about the Indian day schools, the Indian hospitals. And there there are many other issues that are going to continue to pop up. So I've seen this online and I, I heard it in some of the legacy media comments uh, made when the ruling came out was, what else is going to happen? Well, Unfortunately, we're about halfway there before we kind of are able to turn a page on some of our darkest history. The 60s scoop was sort of the beginning of what we now know as the child welfare system. So they, again, just like residential school, in their hearts, they thought they were helping But you have to imagine, just as a human being, taking kids away from their families and moving them to other communities and, in some instances, other countries. I mean, there were people that ended up in the United States, some in Europe. Some of these scoop survivors ended up in the Northwest Territories, you know, from Southern Ontario. So growing up in completely foreign cultures, I mean, this was the beginning of what we know as the child welfare system and look at the leading issue in communities today is the child welfare system. There are more children in care right now, this minute, as we listen to this podcast, more children in care than there were at the height of residential school. So the legacy of this is ongoing and I don't know where it stops.
1: Do you, do you mean more indigenous children in care or more like all children in care?
2: Indigenous, uh, indigenous children specifically, yeah, yeah, and so you well, know,
1: like I knew they were overrepresented, and I knew that like black kids were overrepresented in care. I didn't know that the numbers were that staggering.
2: What they said, you know, if you if you dig into the sixty scoop and read read uh, a lot of the the top writing on it and the and the research, a lot of people at that time were saying this is the way we're going to help. Native families. And so they would go and check on on reserve, go look in the fridges, go look at the house to see what they had. We're talking about the poorest people in Canada being judged based on what's in the fridge. So they would go, well, there's no milk. And by the Canadian food guide you should have milk. <laughs> kids need calcium. So there's, a, there's an X and, uh, and they would look and there would be four kids in one bedroom. Well, you don't have enough bedrooms for your kids. So there's another X. And you look at the way the CFS system works today and whether families are able to raise kids and it's essentially the same criteria. So, you know, poverty and... Uh, The legacy of these systems breed a certain type of environment. And this is where we're still at today. So to make the connection between 150 years ago, when all of this mess started, to February 21st, 2017, it's very clear it's all connected. And I think that's something really important that Canadians need to understand, is that we in Indigenous communities, we can't put these things in boxes to understand them. They're all uh, connected.
1: I don't feel like $85,000 a person is enough. And like the final bill of $1.3 billion is pretty like, there's an eye popping number there. But if you look at what the individual person's life is being priced at, it just doesn't,
0: it doesn't seem like enough. No, I mean, 85000 is, you know, two or three years of, of living um, for years of basically mental torture we tend to why don't we address the root problems of things like get the address poverty there
1: should be food in those fridges there should be you know ryan mentioned the indian hospitals are something we're gonna have to deal with we're still getting stories out of out of the legacy of indian hospitals some of them sort of still operate or there's a new facility that's like a renamed indian hospital and The cost of not doing something now is only going to be, if you want to be as crass in the political sphere as putting this as like, like a long term price of what the public is going to be liable for, what the public treasury is going to be liable for on the long term, the cost of not doing something now is only going to become exponential in the courts as things go along. But if we actually invest in trying to address the wrongs of the past now, then Maybe we won't have, you know, 21.3 billion dollar settlements. Well, there'll they'll be fewer because we'll be able to to fix some of it without it having to go through the courts. And this had like six court cases that had to go to this. And that's just the suggested settlement amount. There's still more court to come here. So why Carolyn Bennett, the minister of indigenous affairs said they're not going to fight it, but why do our governments spend so much money fighting indigenous peoples in court, whether it's the federal government or whether it's our provincial governments, they're just always in court with them. If you look at the list in public accounts for any province or the federal government, about half of the court cases there are with some like some band over a land claim.
2: Yeah, and you know the tactic is First Nations will run out of money; they'll have to drop the case. And as long as we keep things in court you know, we'll starve them out. And um, that for a long time has been the status quo. It's, it's. I think it's fair to report that Carolyn Bennett said the Canadian government will not appeal this decision, which is a first, and she is hoping to sit down with 60 Scoop survivors and try to work this out that way. You know, whether or not that works, I don't know. I can tell you that the Indian Residential School Settlement Money was a real sore point for many Indigenous people. They got a payout based on the type of sexual abuse, physical, mental abuse they experienced. There were tears. My grandmother got a certain amount because she was raped a certain amount of times. And um, if there were lesser offenses on an Indigenous body, then they got a lesser amount. And so I don't know what kind of system they're going to work out here for the payments, but I will say this. The money that the Indian Residential School school civil suit created, the trust that was created through that civil suit brought us the TRC commission. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was 100% paid for by residential school survivors. They gave us the commission. I don't know what the vision is for the 60 scoop here. And I don't know.
1: I'm like banging my head
0: against the microphone. Yeah. Another thing that also baffled me is we don't talk about this. So I looked, I Googled 60 Scoop. I got like seven hits and then it started I did about it in public school. Yeah, it started to devolve into other articles about, not about the settlement, but about previous motions and, and articles. And then I Googled Justin Trudeau handshake and I had like four pages of news articles about- you know, his yoga arms and whether or not he like brought like Trump in and like really is this, is this what
1: happens? That's how we should be spending
0: our time analyzing the body language of Justin Trudeau. Rather than actually addressing, you know, the real, the real news. And this was a huge story this
1: week and it didn't get a lot of play and I think that that's I think a big part of it is we're really bad at looking at the dark corners of our history. Part of this is like we need to, especially in our 150th year, we can't just be celebrating how great Canada is. We need to be willing to take like a long, hard look at so many of the dark corners that we have. And this is like our biggest, shadowiest, scariest dark corner, but there's a bunch of other ones. We're in like an octagon
0: of historical wrongs. History isn't just good history. History involves bad history. Canada 150 needs to recognize all of Canada, not just the good part. Well,
2: and I, I think we could do a whole another hour on Canada 150 and this, this part of the conversation but I do want to say that it's uncomfortable for me as an Indigenous person to have to continue to throw these dark parts of history into the public consciousness and to feel the backlash when, every time it happens and it, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing for me to do through my work or otherwise with friends at dinner to kind of go, oh, you love this country. Oh, you're gonna go watch Sarah McLaughlin on the hill and eat some hot dogs and paint your face. Well, yo, check this out. You know, um, here's here's what's going on and, and why. It's uncomfortable, and this is why I want to put I, this is a politics show, and I, I want to say that uh, politically, how do we change this country? How do we create a consciousness in this country that that can leave the guilt behind? and leave the shame behind and i i want to call all the strong hearts to the front so all the strong-hearted canadian people with your resources with your with your good minds and your good hearts come to the front and let's do the work and and let's change this for our children so that our grandchildren our great-grandchildren aren't having this exact same conversation 30 or 40 years from now, the the political will and the consciousness we can create in this country has to come from the strong hearts. So strong hearts to the front.
1: All right, that's our show for this week. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can find me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. Now, my last name is weird to spell. It's C-S-A-N-A-D-Y.
0: And I'm Hidea Rodrigue. You can find me on Twitter at D D E E Rodrigue. R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E.
2: I'm Ryan McMahon at RM Comedy. Kelly Leach, if you're listening, I saw you in an airport. And you were very rude to the lady that brought you the Shirley Temple. How dare you?
1: All right, that was Canada Land Commons. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook and visit our website, canadalandshow.com slash commons. You can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like this show, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. We'll be back in two weeks.